incredible promise from our God. He says to us um, that he will leave the 99 to find the one. Anybody grateful for that today? And then when he finds the one, he saves the one, and he promises eternal life. Can get amen for that today. Amen for eternal life. That's a great promise you can't get from anywhere. Dr. George Wood had an amazing painting in the office of an African man standing on the hillside overlooking the ocean. There is a steamship on the horizon and a smaller canoe coming toward the shoreline. Can you picture it? In this instance, the story is worth a thousand paintings. It symbolizes the importance of going before we're ready. In 1908, newly commissioned missionaries John and Jessica Perkins were on board a steamship rounding the coast of Liberia. They knew God had called them to Africa. But like Abraham, they didn't know exactly where God wanted them to go. So they purchased tickets and trusted God would tell them where to get off the steamship. As the ship made its way around the Garraway Point, they sensed the Holy Spirit was prompting them to get off the ship. Unknown to the Perkinese, there was a young man living in the region named Jasper Toe. He was a God-fearing man who practiced the religious rituals passed down by his ancestors, but he never heard the name of Jesus Christ. One night, he looked into the night sky and prayed a simple prayer. If there is a God in heaven, help me find you. As Jasper stood under the stars, a voice he had never heard before spoke to him. Go to Garraway Beach. You will see a box on the water with smoke coming out of it. And from that box on the water will come some people in a small box. These people in this small box will tell you how to find me. Jasper Toe traveled seven days on foot to Garraway Beach, arriving on Christmas Day, 1908. From the shore, he saw a black box, a steamship, floating on the water with smoke coming out of it. And that is when John Perkins and his wife sensed the Holy Spirit saying, get off the ship here. This is where I want you to go. When they went to the captain of the ship and asked him to let him get off the ship, he said, I can't let you off of the boat here. This is cannibal country. People go in there and they never come back. John Perkins insisted, God wants us to get off the boat. The captain brought the steamship to a halt and Perkins were placed in a mammy chair that swung them out of the side of the ship. They got into a canoe along with all their belongings and they rowed to the shore in that little box. When they got to the shore, Jasper Toe was waiting to welcome them. He motioned for them to follow him and they did. 
They could not speak each other's language, but the Perkins followed Jasper Toe all the way back to the village. They eventually learned the language of the people there. They started the first church in that village, and Jasper Toe was their first convert. Those who knew Jasper Toe described him as one of the godliest men they had ever met. And his legacy is the hundreds of churches he helped to establish in the country of Liberia. What if the Perkins had ignored the prompting of the Holy Spirit? What if they had dismissed that God idea as a bad idea? What if they had asked why instead of why not? What if they had decided to play it safe and stay on the ship? I'm not sure the author says if God could have intervened in another way. And I would like to think that he would have. But who can calculate the opportunity cost when we ignore the promptings of the Spirit, thereby missing divine appointments? Faith is not faith until it's acted on. God is willing to leave the 99 to find the one. And not only is he willing, he wants us to be willing. Grab your Bibles and I'll show you what I mean and turn to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 15 verses 1 to 7. And when you find that and as you find that or turn there, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Luke chapter 15 verses 1 to 7. Would you stand as we read it together? Ready, read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You may have a seat. It's a beautiful parable tucked in the midst of three parables. We're just looking at the first today. But here's what I know from this parable and the two others attached to it. Unlike many of us, Jesus gravitational pull is toward the lost his pull is toward the lost his heart is to go looking for those that have been left behind this text tells us as Jesus tells this story as the Pharisees are there they look at him and mutter this man welcomes sinners Jesus was often criticized because he loved the lowest category of society you see, the religious people that were looking at him were referring to prostitutes and thieves and those of the lower class that Jesus often spent time with. We would say, or they would say, the worst of the worst came to Jesus and he still welcomed them. I'm grateful he does, aren't you? <laughs> aren't you grateful that that's the heart of our Savior? The lost people loved him. Think about this. Because they were able to spot phoniness anywhere. If you spend some time and enough time with 
people that might not know Jesus yet and are seeking him, if you spend time with groups of people that collect together clubs and, and, and sororities and just classes of people, and then you try to find your way into them, they can spot a phony anywhere. But they can see real love. And if they see real love, they'll give you an invitation to wherever they're at. Gaining the trust of a sinner far from God is not easy. He didn't say that we have to be like them, but he genuinely said we should love them. Think about this. You don't have to be like them to be with them. A person far from God that might be different than you, that might practice what you might not practice, if you want to gain a voice in their life, you don't have to be like them. Just to be with them, love them, and be genuine. Don't fake your relationship. Let them see this is who you are when you're with them and when you're not with them. And Jesus had this uncanny ability to spend time with people far from him who weren't even on the map to seeking him. They loved him because Jesus was not a phony. He didn't pretend to be like them. He just loved them. And that's how Jesus is sharing this parable to us today. You see, Jesus' love has no boundaries. Think about it. He left heaven and came to the world. And yet the truth is, let's be really honest, some of us struggle to walk across the street to tell someone about Christ. Jesus left heaven and walked to earth. Jesus' love requires no credentials. All men and women from skid row to the front row, he loved them. He never put, well, you need to clean yourself up. You need to do this or that before I'll engage you or spend time. No, he was genuine in his love and sinners saw it. And it was a breath of fresh air. They knew something was different about him because he just loved them. He didn't try to be like them. He just wanted to be with them. Jesus' love has no favorites. He loves without conditions. You see, your righteous acts doesn't increase God's love for you, nor does your sin lessen his love for you. Amen? That's the heart of our God. There, is, there are no conditions. And so when Jesus spent time with, with what the Pharisees said were the lowest caste of sinners, he spent time with them and he loved them because he was concerned about their destiny. Jesus' love would ultimately cost him his life. And no greater love can we show for anyone than to give up our lives for someone. Jesus gave his life for people who would spit on him, who would curse him, and who would do nothing good for him. There wasn't, I'll be your friend if I do this and you do that for me. If you want to win someone far from God, don't engage their club, don't engage their, their property, don't engage their life and expect that somehow you'll get something in return. Just go and give. It's different than what they probably have ever seen. That's what Jesus was able to do. You see, I hope that you and I never want to be like the Pharisees and teachers of the law, especially at Grace Community Church. I want each one of us and those that have are far from God, that drive by our church or live in Elkhart County, 
that they would choose to walk in our doors because they're curious of the love that we have for them and for one another. No strings attached. I'm not going to love someone because I know they're going to come to Christ. I'm going to love them because Jesus wants us to love the one that's far from God. May we never walk to our workplaces and say, I wish those people didn't work with me. It breaks my heart when I hear conversations, people will say, I got to get out of this place because it's so lost. I got to get to a place where there aren't so many lost people. And I would say this, then who is going to reach them for Christ? We can't continue to run to our holy huddles. We often forget that we were once lost too. And it's so easy to forget that. You see, think about your lostness. There's probably a picture of you in your lostness, even in your savedness, that's not very pretty. And the reality is that someone came after you. And if we don't come after someone, then they will be lost forever. The cross is a reminder that Jesus wanted heaven to be filled with people. And the best way that happens is if you and I share the good news. Jesus brought heaven down. Our sin is great and it separates us from God. But his love was greater. And because of his love, it bridged the gap for us. I find it interesting if you go through the book of Mark and and Luke and John, how many times you'll see this phrase, and crowds gathered around Jesus. And when they gathered, there was a large crowd. If you go to the book of Mark and just do a word search on crowd, Mark often alludes to crowd, Jesus, crowd. There was something about Jesus that was appealing. And the truth is, he just loved people. He loved people far from God. And he he put the religious people in their place, and the people far from God loved that because religious people didn't want anything to do with those that were far from God. He just loved. They did not share his view of the world, but they liked him anyhow. Let me just ask a question. Do people like you anyhow, even though their view of politics even though their view of government, even though their view of COVID is different, do they still love you because they see genuine love in you? Can I ask you another question? Do you hate people of a political party that are different than you? Do you spend all your time showing the world how much you hate them? Do you dare think that that hate would ever win someone to Jesus Christ? You don't have to be like them to love them. But you can't love them unless you're with them. And hate separates us from people. Sometimes I just want to say, think about what you post We spend so much time telling the world what we're against and not what we're for. We are for Jesus. We are for love. We are for eternity and a heaven populated with people far from God that came to know him because we told them about Jesus. You see, Jesus experienced greater joy in the company of those who were shamelessly lost 
than the self-appointing guardians of religion of that day called the Pharisees. He would much rather spend time with those far from God than those that were checking off the law of the day. And the reality of them, most of them were lost too and didn't even know it. May we, be, may we not be more in love with our theology than we are with those outside of our theology. We can know our theology well. We can study it. We can, we can know all the nuances. We can know the Greek and the Hebrew. We could quote the books of the Bible. We, know, we, could, we could quote justification and sanctification. We could even explain sublapsarianism. Yet the reality is may we not be more in love with what we know than those who don't know what we know. We have to bring it down to, to earth. Here's what I know from this parable. God treasures people on the road far from him as much as he does the people in the pews today. You see, God loves, his eye is on the road. And he loves the people far from him on the road as much as he loves you and me seated in these chairs today. May God give us that heart for people on the road. The found sheep must be left before the lost sheep can be found. I love that thought in this parable. Jesus tells his story trying to describe to the super-religious that everyone is worth rescuing. God's eyes are on the road today. Can I ask you, are your eyes on the road? How much time this week did you spend contemplating those that are on the road far from God? Or was every second and every day consumed with your own wants, your own problems, your own issues? Is your life a picture of you? God spends his time on the road looking for those that are far from him to bring him them close to him. More than ever, the world that we live in right now with COVID, it's becoming more and more that we are separating ourselves because of six-foot distancing because of going into stores. Now think about it. How many of you have engaged in a conversation recently in a store? How many of you heard a guy say recently that he realized that he was walking into stores and he was looking for rows that didn't have people, cashiers, and he was looking for self-service so he could stay away from people? And Satan wants us to stay away and God wants us to go to them. If we don't engage people in conversation, then how will they know? We must fight back when the enemy is trying to push us away. Find ways. Look for people to have conversations with. I have never met a person Jesus didn't love and die for. Never. Think about that for a second. Every single person who has ever lived and will live, Jesus died for them. There is intrinsic value in every person because you and I and them are created in the image of God. There is not a person that Jesus hasn't ever died for. We live in a world that loves to hate. We just do. 
We live in a world that loves to show what we stand for. And sometimes I think, do you really think that thought that you put out there to the world will draw people to Jesus? Do you really think that your opinion will make people say, I want what you have? Jesus would often separate himself. I often wonder if Jesus walked into our communities, would he want to spend time with us? Would he say, like, your religious spirit, your political view, and the way you have separated yourself from others, I want nothing to do with you. Think about this for a second. As we bring this home, are we really any different than the Pharisees? with our stances and our views and our separation of views that we have. When you lose something of value, you focus on what is lost to the neglect of what is unlost. And that's what Jesus is saying here. When you lose something or something gets lost of value, you focus on what is lost to the neglect of what is unlost. The first couple of years that Anne and I were married, we, I was a layperson youth pastor in a church, and so we spent hours, weeks, years investing in teenagers. And on one of the events, we had a hayride. We were married for a couple of years, and we went to a friend's house, and it was nighttime, and we were on this hayride, and as we're on this hayride, Anne comes to me and says, Jim, I lost my wedding band. She had climbed up on the hay and lost her wedding band. And in that moment, she didn't look at me and say, well, I lost my wedding band, but I still have my boots. No. What was of value to her was worth searching for. And she completely, and we completely neglected what was unlost. In fact, at that point, it didn't matter if the teens got lost because something of value was there and it was missing. And so what did we do? We quickly asked anyone, does anyone know of someone who has a metal detector? We were in the dark of night traveling in, back through a field that I had never been in. We were entirely focused on what was lost to the neglect of what was unlost. I don't remember how the kids even got back to the house. But we grabbed a metal detector and we went looking and you know what we did? I walked the entire route that we had traveled. And we went through cornfields and hayfields and we drove through the woods. And I kid you not, I was focused on what was of value and by the grace of God, we found it about a half mile after the search. And Jesus is saying that you and I should do the same for those that are lost. To the neglect of what is already unlost. But how much time are you spending with the unlost to the neglect of what isn't lost? Many who are far from God have moments too when they miss home. But they wonder if home is missing them. Have you ever had someone, maybe it was you, you walked far away from the teachings of your mom and dad. You never initially came to Christ. You knew the way, but you never trusted Christ 
to give your life to him. And so you grew up hearing all these stories about Jesus. And so there's a point in your life, maybe it was you, maybe you have children, and maybe you know friends. You have friends that you grew up with. They grew up in a Christian home, heard the truths, the same truths that you received. And the truth is this, many of those miss home, but they wonder, does home miss me? Does my brother, my sister, my church that I went to, my neighbor, my mom, my dad, miss me? They might not ever tell you that, but in the third parable, I am convinced that the prodigal son had a moment where he missed home, we see, and I'm sure he wondered if home missed him. Are you creating the kind of environment that even if your son, your daughter, your friend, your coworker, your dad, your mom, your husband, your wife goes far from God that they know that they could come back because you love them and miss them. That's the heartbeat of the 99 left behind and going after the one. I love the verbs in this passage, and I want you to take a close look in chapter 15 again. Look at the words that, the words that Luke, the doctor, uses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says, doesn't he leave? He goes after. He finds it. He puts it on his shoulders. He calls his friends. And so the first verb is he leaves the found ones. That's exactly what love does to the expense of those that are already found. In other words, he is saying that the lost one is just as valuable as the found ones. Are they? Are those that know Christ, and maybe family members, and those that you know know Christ, are those that are far from God that would spit in Jesus' face? Are they just as valuable to you as those who bend their knee to Jesus Christ? Have you separated your love and said, I could never love those people? Look what they have done. Let me clue you in on something. Jesus died for those people. And he wants you and me to leave these people and go find those people. That's the heart of this parable as Jesus is telling it. Jesus says, I was willing to leave the holy huddle of heaven to come for you. The next verb is, or phrase is, he goes after And I would say he is going after the lost sheep. Many people live a large portion of their lives believing everything is okay with them. And yet until you come and share the truth that they don't need to earn their way to God, that their good works will have them fall short of the glory of heaven because no one is righteous. No, not one. And there are groups of people good people who do good things, who give millions of dollars to philanthropy out there. There are 
kind, loving people that are in your family that live next door to you that don't even realize that when they breathe their last breath, they will be taken away to an eternity of hell unless you tell them that it's by grace through faith alone in Christ that we're saved. You and I are the messengers. And Jesus is saying that this shepherd goes after them. Some are building their portfolios here on earth and preparing for retirement, thinking they are on the perfect track for security. Yet they will stand before God one day and he will say to them, and may it not be someone that you know, depart from me, I never knew you. Maybe this week you, like the Perkins, need to hear the whispers of the Holy Spirit that says, make this hard phone call this week. Walk across the street. Stand in a cashier line where there are people. And when you walk outside, greet and talk to those people. Then he says in this parable, he finds the sheep. Jesus is on a search and rescue mission for you. There is no place that you can go that he can't find you. Besides, a lost person is lost and can't find their way home. They will never find their way back on their own. The lost sheep will remain lost until we find him. And there's one little word that jumped out of the text to me in a fresh way, and I want you to look at this word. In chapter 15, it says this in verse... Five, or verse four, it says, look again, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? And the next word is what? Until he finds it. That's convicting. That means that's a relentless pursuit that once you begin it, you don't stop. You have a neighbor, you have a son, you have a daughter, you have a friend, you have a coworker, you have a mom, you have a dad, you have a husband, you have an uncle, you have an aunt that's far from God, and you don't give up until they're found. That's the spirit, until, until, it's not like, that's it, I've tried 10 times, no, it's until, until, and the shepherd wasn't coming back until, until he found the lost sheep. It's a spirit of forbearance, long-suffering on my knees every day. God, here I am again. My son needs you. I will not retreat from here until he comes home. It's until. It's a convicting word. I won't come back until the improbable becomes probable, until the impossible becomes possible. I will search until I find it. Yesterday, I was down at the lake, and I wanted to go for a ride with my wife. We went out last night for a ride on the lake. It was a beautiful evening. And so as I was taking the cover off of the boat, I took off my watch because on the bottom corner of the boat, you have to get down in the water 
to literally pull the cover up. And before I pulled the cover up, I took off my watch. And I remember thinking, I need to put this in a place that I'll remember. That was a great thought (laughs) for a 58-year-old man. And I remember thinking, I'll remember it. So I stuck it in my back pocket. So as I'm rolling it up, getting the boat ready, pulling off the cover, putting it on the pier, and Anne's coming out of the cottage, and we're ready to go, I thought, oh, I remembered that I thought I need to remember where my watch is at. (laughs) I'm being very vulnerable here. It happens all the time. And so I went on this search for this watch. It's a good one, by the way. It was a gift from our older son. It's a Garmin, and it keeps my heart rate and tracks miles and lets me know the number of hours I sleep. And it's a gift that's an incredible gift, and it's, it's the nicest watch that I've ever owned. And I remember thinking, where's my watch? So Anne came out, and we began to turn the boat upside down, (laughs) trying to find this watch, looking everywhere. And I thought, I remember having it in my hand when I had the cover. And so we pulled the cover out, we shook it. And so I thought, well, I gave it my best shot. And as we got in back in the boat, she says, Jim, the watch that's on your wrist, is that the watch you want to look for? I had put it back on my wrist and forgot. (laughs) You laugh. It'll happen. But the point is this. I wasn't giving up until I found it. (laughs) We had a good laugh. You did, at my expense. (laughs) Then it says this. He puts it on his shoulder. The sheep is in the wilderness and far from home and has a treacherous long trip home, the shepherd does. Yet the shepherd will not let him leave and leave him behind. He takes him home, even if it means he has to carry him the whole way. You see, with the Holy Spirit in you, your capacity to be used by God doesn't hinge on your ability, but on your availability. And so he was willing, the shepherd was, and he was willing to do the hard thing of carrying him home. And that's what Jesus does. Once he finds you, He will never leave you nor forsake you, and he will carry you everywhere. That's the picture that's here. I love what happens next in this text. And look with me in chapter 15. It says in verse 5, and when he finds it, he joyfully, he doesn't begrudgingly say, where are you been? I told you a hundred times. No, he 
joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then it says, he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He calls his friends and neighbors and says, we're having a party. And here's what I know. Many of your friends and neighbors know the story about your son. Many of your friends and neighbors know the story about the cranky neighbor. Many of your friends and neighbors know the story about the boss that is full of hate. Many of your friends and neighbors know about the the adulterous person. When they come to Christ, even with all that baggage and are found, it says that those that are left back at home in the pews say, Let's throw a party. They love them unconditionally. And not only love them, they are thrilled that they have been found. The only parties that we see in heaven, by the way, that break out are the ones for the one that was lost and is now found. The shepherd doesn't say, what a waste of time. He celebrates because one more has been found and a party is about to be thrown in heaven. They rejoice. Why? Because God cares for each person individually and he makes a big deal about each one of us. I don't know if you know this, but I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 and keep your finger here in Luke. But look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. 1 Peter 1 and verse 12. It's a very, very incredible passage. But in the midst of this praise to God, at the end of this, before we get into set your minds on him, Peter says this in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the what? Gospel to you by the what? Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he gives this intriguing, like intriguing phrase. Even angels long to look into these things. The reality is this. Angels, one version says, they lean in when the gospel is about to be presented. They have a curiosity. Maybe it's because they want to throw another party. <laughs> Maybe they realize that this person was once lost is now found. I read some commentary on it this week, and it's beautiful. Listen to this. The final phrase of our text tells us that angels long to look in things relating to our salvation. There are two different Greek words here. One means to stand on tiptoe as if you are at the back of a crowd trying to watch a parade. The other means to stoop down. It's the same word used for Peter and John stooping to look inside the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. 
The angels are so eager to understand God's grace that they stand on tiptoe and they bend down from the battlements of heaven to marvel at the unfolding plan of salvation. This is exactly the reverse of the way we think of it. If I told you that I had a special door that, l- look, that let me look into the realm of the angels, all of you would crowd around to get a glimpse of the other side. But the Bible never encourages us to peek into the angelic realm. We, here we are told the angels long to look and understand our salvation. During the Renaissance, a painter named Tintoretto created a beautiful version of the Last Supper. Though da Vinci's version is far more popular, Tintoretto's closer comes closer to capturing what really happened. He painted the scene from an elevated angle, so we see Jesus and his disciples gathered around the table. It appears that Jesus has just said, this is my body, this is my blood. There is a sense of drama and tension in the painting as the disciples struggle to understand. Above the table, an oil lamp gives off a cloud of smoke. Tintoretto painted angels in the smoke, watching from above, their faces strangely curious as they too marvel at what God the Son is about to do. And that's exactly the idea that Peter is driving at. There's even a curiosity in heaven when you and I put our eyes on the road, when you and I go after what is lost to the neglect of what is unlost, when you and I walk across the street and engage, when you and I go to that cashier line that is loaded with people potentially far from God. The angels peer down because they say there could be a party today. Here's some realities. You and I often feel better about finding what is lost more than before it became lost. Have you ever lost something and loved it more after you found it? You didn't realize the value that you had before it was lost? Because maybe there was something twisted in your mind about that person. But often when something is lost, is found, you love it more when it was found than when it was unlost. Have you ever lost something of great value to you and no one was looking for it but you? Have you ever felt that way? Like, that's valuable to me. Why doesn't anyone else care? And Jesus is saying, the people on the road are valuable. And there's some mama, there's some daddy, there's some grandfather, there's some grandmother, there's some husband or wife or child or friend or boss that is longing for someone else to care as much as they do about their son, their daughter, their grandson on the road far from God. I thought about that Friday as we were having our staff meeting, we sat in a big room and we spread our chairs out and our phones began to bling and an Amber Alert came up on our phones. 
And the thought occurred to me, what do I do with this? Do I care as much about this lost person as the mom or dad that knows they're lost? We should. In that moment, we prayed for that person to be found. There is a little sheep in all of us and a lot of sheep in most of us. We want to do our own thing. We want to go our own way. We too often follow our own desires until one day we discover we too are far away from God. And listen to me. There was a day that you were far away from God. And because of someone willing to have their eyes on the road, like our God does, you now rejoice in all the treasure of God himself. We need to have our eyes on the road. Let's not be like the Pharisees. Let's not be that church that is spoken of here. Let's not be these people. Let's not be those church people. Oh God, I pray that you would use us. I pray, God, that we would look out our window. We sang a song at the beginning of this service that best captured exactly what we have been talking about. There is a world outside of our window. And we are the ones that can take the message of hope to them. May we never hide our light. In Jesus' name, amen.